0: Needed in sector wars, Astro Blaster. Hello once again, happy December, and this is episode 25 of the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast, and this is your host, Sean. Well, happy December, assuming you're listening to this in December. For all I know, you could be listening to this, say, I don't know, february of 2024 but hey happy whatever i hope it's happy for you and uh wow this is the first episode after thanksgiving 2017 and uh, had a uh, little getaway to new jersey and spent two and a half hours of course waiting in terminal a of newark airport to come back to chicago and uh Let me tell you, that is an experience that uh, you should uh, never have. Saturday was interesting, small business Saturday. My wife and I had been eyeballing an Audio-Technica turntable at a store in our neighborhood, and it's like, hmm. So we figured, well, Saturday is small business Saturday, so we broke down and bought the thing. And, um, so that was a lot of fun. And, uh, now I just have to figure out cause I think they might've set it up, not the best way because it doesn't really sound all that great despite how everybody seems to rave about that particular model. So it looks like I got a little project ahead of me, adjusting the stylus, making my records sound nice and good, like they do on my old techniques. But, uh, later on that day I had told my wife, I said, look, Saturday of Thanksgiving weekend, I need to go out and I need to. Nerded it up. I need to play some video games. She's like, okay. So I did. And I went to underground retrocade in uh, West Dundee, Illinois. I love that place. And uh I wasn't faring so well. I'm trying to improve my centipede score. I got up to, t- I think 220,000 once, and I've never been able to match it since I've been keeping all the strategies I learned in mind, but I don't know. I don't know. It's like the centipede gods are just not with me lately. Underground Retrocade, not terribly long ago, acquired a Bubble Bobble, so I played a little bit of that. I never really played that in the arcade very much. I played the Commodore 64 and Amiga versions and uh, had some fun with that. But amid all my frustrations, I just figured, you know what, let me just get the dirt out of my system. Let me just play a a short round of uh, Junior Pac-Man Turbo, which is, as you probably figure by now, is Junior Pac-Man, but with the speed-up chip so that... uh, junior Pac-Man moves faster. I think something like twice as fast. And uh, it is a setting on the homebrew Atari 7800 version as well. I currently hold the Twin Galaxies world record on that. It's something like 534,000, I think, which isn't really terribly high given how it's fairly easy to get a high score in junior Pac-Man turbo. But the reason I have the world record on that is that there are so few instances of that game that not a lot of people play it. And uh, I had gotten 600 and some thousand after that, but unfortunately I didn't get a uh, video of the gameplay, so I couldn't submit it to Twin Galaxies. But uh, I figured, you know what, here, let me just get the gunk out. At least let me see if I can beat that high score on the screen right now, which was something like, I don't know, 178,000. So I'm playing and I'm playing and I'm playing. And before long, I realize, um, I just cracked 700,000. And then a little while later, I'm at 900,000. <laughs> and then suddenly I realized okay, I only have one life left, but there's a good chance I might actually roll the score. And I've never rolled the score on an arcade game before ever in my life. So after I cleared a board, I hurry, I quickly grabbed my iPhone, flipped the little screen up, and hit the camera and turned the video on. And so I'm playing Turbo Jr. Pac-Man with my right hand, and I'm holding my iPhone up to the screen with my left hand and trying to concentrate. <laughs> and uh, one of the regulars over there, Jason Latko, comes up to me. He says, like, hey, Sean, how are you doing in this game right now? He's like, oh, my God, look at that. And I said, hey, could you do me a favor? Could you hold my phone just until I roll the score? He's like, oh, yeah, sure. So And I did. I I rolled the score. I I got of whatever uh, swallowed a root beer, and then the score reset to zero. And it's like, whoa! And it's the first time I ever got a million points in a game, except for Outrun, which I don't really count because, I don't know, it just seems that Outrun, they give you 500,000 points just for basically just for choosing a soundtrack or something. Because, yeah, it's not hard to get a million in there. You have to maybe race for like three seconds. <laughs> but, yeah, I got my first million points. And I ended up scoring something like thousand, And uh, so I currently hold the Orcade.com world record, which isn't really official. But man, I did not have video of that. And um, all I can think is I can go back, I can do it again. And the Scott Lambert, who's the proprietor of Underground Retrocade, he saw what was going on. He saw me getting that score. He said, you know what Doc Mac always says, even if you're just messing around, have a camera ready. (laughs) Oh man. So that's, uh, that was my exciting video game stuff. I suppose I haven't really had much of a chance to do much gaming at all. Other than that, I haven't really turned on the Atari 7,800 since I've been back from uh, Thanksgiving. So yeah, I'm kind of going through withdrawal and it's not fun as you can probably imagine. Oh, one thing I should address is because a couple of people have asked me about this. Uh, as some, if not all of you know, I also co-host Pie Factory podcast, which is an arcade podcast. And uh, Jim and I are taking a break on that podcast um, until January, sometime in January. And a couple of people have asked me, are you doing the same thing for the Atari 7800 Homebrew podcast? The answer is no, I'm not taking a break there. Honestly, it's just really amazing how easy it is just to record this podcast. It really is. Uh, Even though I, you know, I do all the work myself, but still it just feels pretty easy to do. You know, if I, sometimes on my way to work, I'll pull out my laptop and I'll edit the show together and it's done by the time I get off the train. So, uh, I really enjoy doing this and I want to just keep going every two weeks until literally I run out of games. And then once I run out of games, what am I going to do? Well, there will be more in the future, obviously. So basically, once I have covered every homebrew that I could really give any serious time to, there just won't be any shows until the next homebrew comes out. But what I am planning to do, and uh, I've never mentioned this yet on this podcast, I have always thought in the back of my mind, and I've actually said this out loud to my wife a couple of times, that... uh, you go to a bookstore, you always see uh, biographies and autobiographies of famous people. But what about people like me? Nobody knows who I am. I'm not famous. I'm not a rock star. I'm not um, a, a politician. And that's it. I really don't think that podcasting about old video games has gotten me any fame. I really don't. So basically I am just a schnook, you know, there's, you know, just a regular everyday guy. (laughs) And I always thought it would be interesting if there was some kind of an autobiography just on someone who nobody knows, just your average everyday person. So I figured, well, maybe I should write that. But then I'm like, every time I try to write something though, it doesn't happen. I was going to, I really was considering writing this Writing a book about Pac Man that would have everything you could conceivably want to know about it. And then I realized, okay, then that means you have to cover the arcade games, of course. You have to talk about the history of Pac Man, the history of Namco. You have to talk about uh, the home games, and there are tons of them. You have to talk about the mobile games. You have to acknowledge at least some of the more popular clones. That's a big undertaking. So it's like, you know what? Let me just make a blog out of it, period. And, you know, I could just add to it whenever I want. And I don't think it's, I think it's been a while since I added to it. So I'm thinking, hmm, with this autobiography of just your average everyday guy, I'll just do a podcast about it. I'm just going to call it autobiography of a schnook. And um, what I'm thinking is that uh, it'll still, I don't know if I'm going to keep it with a regular every two weeks thing or just release it whenever I can actually spare a few moments now and then. Uh, which will give me a little bit more time to do them, but uh, that's that's my plan. Like Once I finish with this podcast, or at least run out of games, I should say, I'll do autobiography of a schnook, and uh, every episode will be just a different topic that has some kind of meaning to my life. So that's kind of what I'm thinking right now. But again, once this podcast has gone through every game, it's not necessarily permanently over because... There will probably be more homebrews in the future that uh, will require some coverage, so that's what I'm planning for that. And um, there we go. So before we get into today's episode, we have some feedback, so let's get to it. I did recently hear from Grey Defender. Uh, You may remember that in his feedback for Super Circus Atari Age, he mentioned a Super Circus Atari Age patch, and I was like, wait a minute, what? because i don't have such a thing so he sent me a picture of it he got it with his purchase of super circus atari age i didn't get it with mine and i figured well i don't know maybe did you buy it from the store when it was released in the store he said no i'm a subscriber well i'm a subscriber too and i didn't get a patch but uh he sent me a picture of it it's a white square i can't really tell how big it is but it looks like it's counted cross stitch or something uh it's got a picture of kind of a hobo-style clown on it. Uh, he's wearing what looks like jeans, an orange jacket, a fat tie, three little puffs of orange hair, and he's, tip- he's kind of tipping a top hat. And he's holding an umbrella, an orange umbrella. And over the top of the patch, partly obscuring the orange umbrella, it's uh, a series of red, blue, and yellow balloons, and in each balloon, it has a letter and the letters spell out super on the top row of balloons and then circus on the bottom row of balloons. So uh, that's uh, what that's all about. Thank you so much for sending that over. Great offender. I also heard from Vert Vic, AKA Victor Marlin from the 10 pence arcade podcast. He sent me a feedback over the Twitters and he says, can't believe you never saw or played Mooncresta in the arcade. B I T D. It was everywhere over here, meaning England, probably in the top 10 most common games. Well, yeah, I mean, I've never seen it. Ever, 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 ever. But the thing is, I don't remember for sure if I mentioned this, but BITD, as you say, Victor, I didn't really get to the arcades much. I, I'd go once per month when my family would go to the Lincoln Mall in Matson, Illinois, and my dad would give me a dollar. That's four tokens. And there was one time when my when my dad took me to that arcade in the mall, the uh, Aladdin's Castle, and he said, actually, I want to play a game of Ms. Pac-Man with you. So we had to play a two-player game, which meant I only got to play three games that day. <laughs> Thing is, like I could only play four games at a time, and I was very selective about the games. I'm, as you probably know, I'm a big pac-man fan so i made sure that i reserved at least one token for a pac-man game that was not professor pac-man never played that in the arcade ever i was not going to waste my money on that crap and then the other tokens that i had left i typically used on one of the like core games like defender or centipede or burger time or popeye or donkey kong or donkey kong jr something like that so yeah i am not familiar with moon cresta in the arcade There were actually two arcades near where I lived at the time. There was Wizard of War in Kankakee in the Meadowview Shopping Center. I was never taken there ever, although my brother went there all the time. So I have no idea what they had. No idea what their game selection was. And there was another arcade that was fairly close to where we lived. It was uh, just maybe about half a mile away, and it was called Stargaze. Uh, It went up a little bit later than Wizard of Games did. And I was at Stargaze once, and that was November of 1983. I think it was 1983. Was it 1983? Yeah, it was 1983. My brother had just turned 19, and he was just about to go into the Army. He had to leave for Fort Knox shortly after he turned 19. All the family was over. It was basically kind of a combination birthday party slash going away party. So all the family were over, all the relatives from closer to Chicago than we lived, And uh, my brother wanted to go to Stargaze, so I went with him and my cousins did, some some family folks did, and that was the only time I went to Stargaze. And I don't remember what they had. All I remember was that they gave you six tokens for a dollar, and the tokens looked really, really cool. They had slots in them, believe it or not. And I don't remember what they had over there at all from that one visit when I was nine years old. So, uh, yeah. But anyway, you know what? it would be a good idea to talk about a Atari 7800 homebrew video game right now. And uh, that one is going to be Astro Blaster, which is Bob DiCrescenzo's homebrew conversion of the arcade game of the same name put out by Sega Gremlin in 1981. First off, Sega Gremlin. We should go over some history of Sega Gremlin. And uh, just a little heads up for you, there's a lot of detail here. This is going to I found out so much about Sega Gremlin, so this is going to be kind of a long segment, but I think it's an interesting little story. So um, let's see if you agree. Now, Sega, of course, has a long, rich history and still exists today, but I'm going to focus on the origins of Sega and Gremlin Industries and how the two companies merged, but I'm going to confess There are times in which when I talk about the arcade games, it's hard for me to discern which is Sega versus which is joint Sega Gremlin, so I apologize if there are any inaccuracies. But about Sega itself, well, although most of us probably know Sega to be Japanese, it actually began in Hawaii, and it was founded by three American businessmen, Irving Bromberg, Martin Bromley, and James Humpert, and they founded Standard Games in Honolulu in 1940. As with many video game companies discussed in this podcast, Standard Games started out making coin-operated amusement machines, especially slot machines, but they were specifically targeting military bases. And because World War II was escalating, there'd be an increase in military recruits, which of course would lead to an increased demand for coin-ops. After all, the troops have to do something to enjoy their leisure time, right? After the war ended, Standard Games was sold off, and the original three founders started another company, a distributor named Service Games. Service referring to military service, and again focusing on military bases. Now in 1951, slot machines were outlawed in the United States and its territories, and this is where Sega's Japanese history began. Not to be foiled by the ban on gambling devices, The following year, Ray Lemaire and Richard Stewart, who worked for Service Games, they went over to Tokyo and established a new distribution company that would again focus on United States military bases, but in Japan. So that way they could service United States military bases, but not have to worry about the national ban on gambling devices. Because, hey, this is Japan now. But anyway, the new company was called Service Games of Japan, and it was in business until May 31st, 1960, when it was closed. And then three days later, it kind of reopened or continued as two separate companies. I do not know how to pronounce Japanese, so I might be butchering this pronunciation. I apologize to anybody who might be cringing when they hear this. But the the company's names were Nihon Garaku Busan and Nihon Kikai Seizo, if I'm not mistaken. Um, if I am mistaken, then that's not their names. But anyway, in the meantime, a Korean War officer in the United States Air Force started a photo booth business called Photorama in Tokyo in 1954. The officer's name was David Rosen, and his photo booth business was quite a success. And if you think about those times, you can kind of understand why. Because normally back then, if you wanted a photograph, you'd have to take a picture, you'd have to send the film off to a lab and wait two or three days before you got your pictures. And in Tokyo at the time... The cost was about 250 to 300 yen to get that photo processed. But David Rosen's booth would have a turnaround time of two minutes for a price of 200 yen. So for minutes rather than days, for cheaper, gee, what option do you think many people would prefer? But here's the thing. There's got to be some sacrifice, right? Right. So what was sacrificed? It was the quality of the pictures. They tended to fade after a while. I mean, if you wanted a picture for something official, like, say, a legal ID or something, then the photo booth probably wouldn't be your best bet. But for the average Joe, the photo booth was a pretty sweet deal. The Photorama Company became Rosen Enterprises, and by 1957, Rosen Enterprises was also importing electromechanical coin-op games over to Japan, including many Seaberg titles. And as you may remember from an earlier episode, Seberg joined forces with Stern during the golden age of arcade games. Because of Rosen Enterprises' Photorama success, Rosen Enterprises was able to work out deals to set up arcades in the lobbies of movie theaters owned by Japanese film studios Shusheko and Toho. And by 1965, Rosen Enterprises had roughly 200 arcade locations. By this time, Nihon Garaku Busan was specializing in jukeboxes, and they were actually in talks with Rosen about merging. And when that merge did happen, it was decided that the name of the new company would be Sega Enterprises, and the word Sega was taken from Nihon Garaku Busan's former name, Service Games, (S.E.L.N.G.A.). And why did they go with that and not say Rosen? Well, because by that time, Service Games was already a recognized name brands. But the word Enterprises in Sega Enterprises did come over from Rosen Enterprises' name. The official name of the company was Sega Enterprises Limited and David Rosen acted as the CEO. By 1966, Sega had transitioned from being a game distributor to being a game manufacturer. And its first title was a submarine simulator called Periscope. Periscope was pretty innovative for its time with its sound effects and lighting effects. And it became a hit in Japan and it would eventually find homes in Europe and the United States. By the way, piece of trivia for you. Periscope was the first arcade game in the United States that cost 25 cents to play. Sega was sold to Golf and Western Industries in 1969 with David Rosen staying on as CEO of Sega. In 1974, Sega Enterprises Incorporated went public. Meanwhile, Gremlin Industries was founded in San Diego as a contract engineering firm by Henry Frank Fogelman and Carl E. Grindle. The company actually got its start when Frank's company, Aeromarine, landed a contract in Los Angeles to develop a portable phone that could be carried around in a suitcase. Got a problem, though. Two of the prototypes for that phone were stolen overnight. Now, what did Jay Leno used to say? Kevin, what do I love? Stupid criminals. Let me tell you about stupid criminals, folks. The people who stole the prototypes were caught in Las Vegas. How were they caught? They were dumb enough to actually try to use the phone, so they were easily tracked down. Unfortunately, the folks in LA terminated the contract with Aeromarine when it decided to make its own phones. And, uh, Aeromarine was like, wait a minute, isn't that kind of a conflict of interest here? So they tried to seek an injunction, but um, Aeromarine couldn't afford the fees that were required to get the injunction. So Frank looked for somebody to help manufacture the phones, and he found a firm over in Palo Alto to do that, and he got a brilliant idea. Wouldn't it be great to market these phones for use in cars? So he went to Hertz Rent-A-Car and pitched the idea. The executives over at Hertz said, you know what, let's uh, let's check it out. So they went over to Palo Alto, where the plant was that was manufacturing the phones for Frank. But the folks from Hertz were not impressed, so they said, no thank you. Perhaps one of the reasons they said no thanks was the folks in Palo Alto claimed that they never heard of one Harry Frank Fogelman or the phone that he was making, But turns out that the Palo Alto company was making its own phone, which means that essentially Frank was swindled out of his technology. And unfortunately, the contract he made with that company had too many loopholes for him to fight back. Think about that, folks. That is two companies right there that basically screwed Frank Out of his technology, out of his possible profits, he was getting sick of it, so he decided it was time to start his own company so that he could be in control of everything. The planning, the production, the process, everything. He started an electronics manufacturing company in the Kearney Mesa section of San Diego in March 1970. You heard me mention Carl Grindle is one of the founders of Gremlin. Well, he was an experienced aeronautics expert and he joined Frank shortly after the company started in 1970. So these two guys decided to call their new business Grindelman Industries. That name Grindelman it combined Carl Grindle's last name and Henry Frank Fogelman's last name. So somebody, neither Frank nor Carl remembers which one of the two it was, called the state of California to register their business. But the person at the state of California that the person talked to misheard the name Grindelman as Gremlin, and that's how the company got its name. So Gremlin's doing business, and they're releasing a lot of different products, including oceanographic devices and industrial kitchen equipment. By the way, if you're old enough to have eaten at Jack in the Box in the early to mid-70s, your french fries came courtesy of a fry maker from Gremlin Industries. So how did Gremlin get involved in the gaming industry? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm about to tell you. Somebody brought Gremlin, a coin-operated dart simulation game, for repairs. The way that the dart game worked was that you would hold down a button while an arm moved back and forth across a screen, and if you wanted the arm to throw the dart, you'd release the button. Gremlin's vice president of engineering, Jerry Hansen, was given the assignment to fix that machine. So he took a look at it, And he found that the electronics were designed pretty poorly, and on top of all that, the gameplay was very predictable. He found that if you wanted a bullseye, all you had to do was hold down the button for a count of four, release it, and it would work every time. So Jerry reached out to the customer who brought that machine in and said, Hey, you know what? This game is so predictable and boring. How about I make it more challenging for you? But the customer said, no, 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 keep it the way it is. The coin box is always overflowing, and I don't want to do anything that might change that. So Jerry thought, eh, whatever. Oh, but if this boring and predictable game can be such a hit, imagine how much money you could rake in with a game that's actually well-designed and challenging. So with that thought in mind, Gremlin started working on a coin-operated wall game with a baseball theme. And you may be wondering... Sean, what is a wall game? (laughs) Well, dear listener, let me tell you, it's basically what you might think. It's a game that was designed to be mounted on a wall. A wall game would typically have silkscreen graphics, and the graphics would be lit up by a series of light bulbs, and those light bulbs would illuminate in various patterns to simulate animation. And uh, by the way, believe it or not, in Europe, During the golden age of arcade games, there were some arcade video games that were actually manufactured in the style of wall games. Off the top of my head, I can't remember which ones. Um, Basically, in addition to the standard full-size stand-up, cocktail table, and cabaret size, you could also get a wall-mounted game. But anyway, 1973 happens, the baseball game is finished, and it's called Playball. Well, the timing of that release wasn't necessarily great because wall games were starting to get a bad reputation at the time because they were typically boring and predictable. So I guess that Dart game wasn't the only one with that problem. But the game was actually a hit at the NAMA convention, NAMA being the National Automatic Merchandising Association. And NAMA is described as representing the convenience services industry. And uh, they're based out of uh, Chicago right here. But um, anyway, Playball was a hit at the NAMA convention, and why was it a hit? Because it was well-designed, and it didn't have the issue of the games whose popularity was waning. Playball was also a commercial success, and that success led Gremlin to release another wall game, a skeet-shooting game called Trap Shoot. Trap Shoot was another hit, so both Trap Shoot and Playball, the success of those games, made Gremlin decide to shift its focus exclusively to games. And there's a however, unfortunately, despite the success of both Playball and Trap Shoot, there were a couple of problems. One of the problems was that the circuitry involved in making those games was pretty complex. And uh, also, while I'm at it, I should point out these games weren't programmed in software, but with discrete logic. I've talked about that before. But uh, just as a refresher, discrete logic means that the programming was done by wiring specific chips together in a certain order. And also, the way the games were designed, well, sometimes it would result in what programmers call a race condition, and it's a problem that plagues programmers to this day. Um, it's a little bit hard to explain, but I guess a way that uh, I can explain what a race condition is, let's say you want situation A to happen, and then after situation A happens and it finishes up and it's done, situation B should happen. Under certain circumstances, though, Situation B might actually begin before Situation A finishes the job, and that's called a race condition because the two situations are kind of racing each other. Also, that discrete logic technology that Gremlin had been using, it was starting to become outdated. So for Gremlin's next game, the problems would be addressed by using a microprocessor. Gremlin brought on a guy named Lane Hawk. He studied physics and engineering when he was in college, and previously he worked for Lockheed. He knew microprocessors, and of course, microprocessors were rampant in mini computers of the day. And Lane Hawk was such a believer in mini computers that he actually bought his own Digital Equipment Corporation PDP 8. Yep, he had one of those huge honking mini computers set up in his house, and he taught himself assembly language programming with one of those things. And for those of you who don't know, assembly language is basically a way of programming that's designed specifically for whatever chip a certain computer has. And because the programming specifically addresses that hardware directly, it results in programs that can execute quickly and efficiently, unlike, say, a compiled language like C and Fortran. They have kind of a generic set of commands and functions, and you have to do what they call compile those programs, which means they get translated into a language that whatever chipset you're using can understand. But anyway, Lane Hawk designed Gremlin's next product, which was a soccer game called Fools Wall. See what they did there? Fools Wall was designed around the 8008, or is it 8008? Whatever, 8008 processor. Screw it. <laughs> Fools Wall was yet another hit for Gremlin, and it helped make Gremlin the most successful. Of many of the wall game manufacturers, even more successful than Midway and Atari were. But during his tenure at Gremlin, Lane Hawk had repeatedly tried to convince the company to get into making video games. He finally got his wish when he designed a game called Blockade. The name Blockade came from Frank Fogelman, and the Blockade prototype was made from an arcade cabinet that Gremlin had gotten from an arcade company that had just filed for bankruptcy. Blockade was finished in November 1976, just in time for the AMOA Expo in Chicago, where the game was a big hit, AMOA being the Amusement and Music Operators Association. And while he was at it, Lane Hawk figured, you know what, let me make a four-player version of Blockade. So he did, and he called it Co-Motion. But back at the AMOA show, Gremlin had acquired over 3,000 orders to fulfill. Two weeks later at the National Amusement Game Show in New Orleans, Gremlin received a huge number of orders again. And word got out that Gremlin was selling all these orders of blockade, so a lot of other companies were like, hmm, let's check it out. So Atari, Midway, Ramtech, and other companies made blockade ripoffs. And of course, Gremlin would sue those companies, but uh, with varying results. And not only did Gremlin have to fight off those copycats, but they also, well, had little experience making arcade video game cabinets, but they still had 3,100 orders to fulfill just from the AMOA convention alone. And Gremlin then found another problem. Sure, the folks in the gaming industry who went to these shows loved Blockade, but it turned out that actual gamers didn't. The game didn't sell very well to the public which was especially a problem because Gremlin had ordered a supply of cabinets and game boards just in preparation to fulfill more orders of blockade. So, to combat what actually was a failure, Gremlin came up with the more challenging version of blockade and called it Hustle. Well, I should tell you a little bit about blockade in case you don't know what it's like. Blockade is, well... It's basically like Snafu on the Intellivision or the Light Cycles minigame in Tron. So it's one of those kinds of games. that This was the very first one to do that. Now, Hustle, the more challenging version of Blockade, not only was it the uh, snaky kind of game, but there were also objects in the game. And the idea was that if you surrounded those objects, you would score more points. So to encourage sales for Hustle, Gremlin took the game on a 19-city tour in the United States and in Europe in April 1977. Gremlin invited players to compete against Sabrina Osment and Lynn Reed, who were the Gremlin Girls, as they called them. And Sabrina and Lynn would be dressed in t-shirts and short shorts. If you managed to defeat the Gremlin Girls in a game of Hustle, you would win a fresh $100 bill. There were over 1,200 challengers, but only seven went home with an additional $100 in their pockets. And apparently the marketing scheme worked because Gremlin allegedly ended the tour with a million and a half dollars in pre-orders for Hustle. And uh, what's interesting is the game really wasn't marketed much further than that because Gremlin also wasn't very experienced with marketing. But it turns out that Hustle actually was more successful than Blockade. So when it came time for Gremlin to put out another game, they're like, well, let's not just do yet another blockade. So the next game they came out with was a submarine game called Depth Charge, and that came out in uh, September of 1977. Then in 1979, they put out a sequel called Deep Scan, which actually I remember playing at Kroger in the early 80s in a Deep Scan slash head-on-two, two-in-one cabinet. And uh, what was new about Deep Scan was that, unlike Depth Charge, Deep Scan had full color built in. And uh, I realize I'm getting pretty deep into Gremlin now, so I'll just be short from here and say that Gremlin released Safari in November 1977, followed by Blasto in June 1978. However, Gremlin now had another problem; its success had gotten the best of the company. Because of its successes with its new games, Gremlin grew to over 200 employees to crank these games out, but unfortunately they weren't really making enough money to support all those employees. But wow, all all this talk about Gremlin, we nearly forgot about Sega, so um, let me get back to Sega. So around this time when Gremlin was uh, having kind of unsuccessful success, if you will, Sega had its own problems. In 1977, Sega was operating after losing almost a million dollars, thanks mainly to its operations in the United States. Sega was a success in Japan, and it found that at first its games were successful, and then suddenly they'd kind of plateau and not be so much successful. One possible problem was that Sega also was the victim of copycats and knockoffs, so whenever Sega would release a game stateside, there'd be somebody releasing their own version of the same game. And, um, the real problem with that isn't so much the legality of making another version of the game. It was more that, well, where were these knockoffs manufactured in the United States? It costs a lot of money to import games from Japan. And not only that, but the knockoffs were cheaper to manufacture. So, hey, cheaper costs for distribution, cheaper costs for manufacturing. You don't have to spend money to ship the games from Japan. So, hey, what are you going to do? Get the original or a knockoff? Gee whiz, I'm going to get a knockoff. And uh, when Sega released Jet Fighter, they particularly had problems with this uh, knockoff phenomenon. And so, Sega decided, you know what? We're ceasing operations in the United States. We're just going to focus on Japan. But... That decision only lasted a short time because in 1975, Sega decided to build its arcade games in the United States in hopes to combat the problems that it had when exporting games out of Japan. So the first game with the new American manufacturing division was Bullet Mark. It was a two-piece target shooting game, basically the panel, I guess, with the screens and everything was up front and then maybe about six feet away from it there was another piece that had the guns and you'd stand there it's kind of like a shooting gallery and a bullet mark was moderately successful and then the next year sega released a trimmed down version and it was only a single piece this time and they called it tracer and the screen had newer and different targets like airplanes and things And then later in 1976, Sega followed up with a car racing game called Road Race and a motorcycle racing game called Motocross. And Motocross actually had sound effects provided by an 8-track tape. Love to go on eBay and see if anybody has any of those. It'd be interesting to find one of those suckers. Now, if you think back, remember I said that uh, Sega was now a division of Golf and Western as of 1969? Does that name sound familiar to you, Golf and Western? If it does, it's probably because you were watching some old TV shows that had the name Gulf and Western at the end of them. And Gulf and Western had a little subsidiary called Paramount. And what was one of Paramount's most successful TV shows back in 1976? Happy Days. So in the summer of 1976... Motocross was re-released under the title Fonz, with a picture of Henry Winkler as the Fonz on the game's artwork, making this new version of Motocross possibly the first instance of an arcade video game that had a celebrity license. And then next up for Sega was Tic Tac Quiz, and like you'd probably guess, it's a tic-tac-toe game. The premise of Tic Tac Quiz was... There would be a fact displayed on the screen, and you would have to either agree or disagree with it. And if you were correct in your agreement or lack thereof, your playing piece, whether it be an X or an O, would get a certain spot on the board. And there was a pool of about 2,500 facts or so stored on a tape. And I know what you're saying. Oh, you know what? That sounds just like the game show The Hollywood Squares. I didn't know Golf and Western owned that show. (laughs) Well, guess what? That's because they didn't the Hollywood Squares was actually owned by Filmways. But as far as I can tell, though, Sega was actually able to get away with that infringement of the Hollywood Squares. So Sega's next product wasn't a video game, but it was a projection screen television set called SegaVision, and it flopped. And that's probably what caused that $800,000 loss in 1977. So Sega realized they desperately needed to do something so they could actually turn a profit. They knew they needed some innovative technology, and it turned out that Gremlin had just what Sega needed. And Sega had just what Gremlin needed, too. So the two companies merged, and it became official on September 29th, 1978. Now, this is getting to be a pretty long discussion, so I'll be as brief as I can so I can cut this thing short and get on with today's episode. Sega Gremlin's first three video games were Frogs, and Fortress, and a licensed version of Namco's video pinball game GB, about which you can hear more in Episode 10, Crazy Bricks. Sega did start to experience better luck with Head-On in April 1979, and Head-On itself was uh, knocked off by Exidy in July 1979 under the title Crash. And you might know Crash and Head-On better as Dodge 'Em on the Atari 2600. Other Sega Gremlin titles include but are not limited to Monaco GP in November 1979, Carnival in June 1980, Astro Blaster in March 1981, and Turbo in October 1981. Sega Gremlin also distributed games that were developed by other companies in other countries for United States release, such as Nichibutsu's Moon Cresta and Corlins Pengo, and perhaps most famously, Konami's Frogger. Anyway, Sega Gremlin became Sega Electronics in 1982, and its arcade properties were sold to Bally Manufacturing in 1983, which would mean the end of Sega Electronics and, effectively, Sega Gremlin. Uh, I'm not going to get into the rest of the history of Sega and their home gaming devices and the Sega shop that just opened up last month, so I'm just going to cut it here. just wanted to talk about Sega Gremlin. So let's move on and talk about Astro Blaster specifically. Astro Blaster came about as kind of a holiday gift to Atari Age users. Bob DiCrescenzo announced that he was working on a 7800 port of the game on December 18th, 2013. Wow. He announced it in a thread that was titled, Fighter Pilots Needed In Sector Wars, which is taken from the speech in the arcade game, which I'll talk about later. There wasn't a ROM posted, but there were nine screenshots. Too much needed to be done with the game yet in order for Bob to post a ROM yet. It wasn't playable. There were sprites and movement tables that were actually copied from the arcade ROM. So, wow, how much better can you get? The fuel gauge from the arcade game is also in the Atari 7800 version, but a third the size and the temperature gauge is about half the size that, that the arcade version has. The play field that's in the arcade version is also in Bob's homebrew version, but it's uh, there are eight rows of pixels that had to be removed in a couple of places in order to accommodate for the horizontal orientation of television sets. At this point, there were some things that Bob had to do yet. He had some collision detection issues he had to fix, He had to work on enemy movement and placement in Sectors 4 and 5. He had to enable the warp button. Um, He had to work on, and I quote, enemies that drop in certain waves. There were hidden bonuses he didn't put in yet. Sound, which he was going to save to the end. High score cartridge support and speech. But he wasn't going to use the Atari Vox. He's just going to use the built-in Tia sound on the 7800, kind of like he did with Frenzy and Berserk. Speech would only happen at certain points in the game when there would be no gameplay action because the way that speech works on the 7800 and 2600 really is that all action has to halt because synthesizing speech on those things takes up about 100% of the CPU time so it can't do anything else. Things that are spoken in the arcade version of the game but can't make it to the 7800 version would actually show up as text on the screen. Bob's plan was to have speech in the attract mode that would say, Fighter pilots needed in sector wars. Play Astroblaster, just like in the arcade game. The original plan was that the game would be done by Christmas, but unfortunately, Bob had a hard drive crash, and at that point, he could only provide a demo posted on December 23rd. Bob said he planned to implement the infamous Sector 8, as he called, which I guess is a secret sector, as well as its secret bonus. There's a guy named Don Hodges who delves deeply into arcade games, and he posted a link to Don Hodges' explanation of Sector 8, and I will post that link in the show notes as well. On Christmas Eve, there was a new ROM posted with the warp function activated, but without the voice from the arcade version, as it would mean that, of course, he would have to stop the action in the game, like I said before. The next day, Christmas, there was another new ROM with improved collision detection, two-button support added, he added support for two-button joysticks, and he fixed some colors for improved visibility on a TV set. December 27th, secret bonuses were mostly done, as well as what I talked about before, enemies that drop in certain waves. And the next day, he posted a ROM that reflected that. And that ROM was downloaded 63 times in 10 minutes. On New Year's Day 2014, Bob had fixed some color cycling issues. The first enemy was now red. I believe it was orange before. Uh, the secret bonus stays on the screen a little bit longer than it usually does. He redid the attract mode, and the option screen didn't appear until a button was pressed or a joystick was moved. There was high score functionality added, and at this point, you can now choose three or five lives. Bob also tweaked the option selection screen. January 2nd, Bob fixed issues that affected gameplay if you played the game in the mess emulator. Also, he made a change so that the reset button would start the game on the option screen or in attract mode. And of course, a ROM was posted to reflect all this. There were sounds in the game, but they were very, very basic. Someone commented that they sounded like the sounds from Warlords, and Bob had to remind people those are only placeholders for the actual sounds. He liked to save the sounds for the end of the development cycle. January 3rd, there was a new ROM, and that one fixed a discoloration issue, and it fixed the order you need to shoot the enemies to get secret bonus number 13. There was a issue with that before. And Bob also said, and I quote, Also, I figured out how to sneak one more little addition in there. Smiley face. What addition was that? I don't know. Bob was good at keeping that secret. January 5th was a good news, bad news kind of situation. Good news. There was now speech in the game. Bad news. It can only fit in a tracked mode. There were sounds that were added, and Bob hoped to see if he could optimize the ROM so he could fit a little bit more in there. And of course, he posted the ROM. Unfortunately, though, he accidentally left his test mode enabled in the ROM so that the game would actually start on the asteroid stage of Sector 1. So the next day, January 6th, Bob actually took the test mode out and he made some adjustments to the attract screen to accommodate the voice. He fixed some sound issues and he added the Sector 8 Easter egg and he added, although I don't think many of you will find it, Later that day, Bob fixed the bug that broke the attract mode if the game over happened during a warp. Bob also replaced the ROMs that were uploaded the prior day, so if you go to the January 5th ROMs, you're actually getting the January 6th ROMs. Bob said at this point the game is done, barring any further issues. Well, that same day, Atariage user Alan found a bug in which in two-player mode, Player 2 would actually just keep repeating the same last wave of the first sector over and over and would never actually progress to the next sector. So later that day, Bob posted a new ROM that fixed that issue. And the next day, Bob posted yet another new ROM that tweaked the frequency of the fireballs in the asteroid screen. On January 11th, Bob posted... Release Candidate 1 and a new feature was that difficulty switches would determine the configuration of the fire buttons on each controller. The next day, Bob fixed an issue with those difficulty switch settings and posted Release Candidate 2. January 14th, Release Candidate 3 came out and it had alert messages about the temperature and the fuel, just like in the arcade game, except in the arcade game they were spoken and in this game they were untext. Bob also gave a spoiler hint as to how to find Sector 8. He said, and I quote, it's the old well-known combination of directions done at a certain point during the game when not controlling the player." smiley face. Oh, I, I wonder if he means the Konami code up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, BA start. Of course, I don't know which button is B, which, which button is a, uh, oh man, I, tr- you know what? I remembered that and I tried that during the attract mode screen. So I got to try that actually during gameplay, I guess. January fifteenth, Atari Age user Nathan Strum discovered that in Sector 4, when the rockets fly down diagonally, if you dodge them, they don't come back. And he ended up with secret bonus sixteen. According to Bob, that wasn't supposed to happen, so he fixed that and he posted release candidate four later that day, along with a picture of a cartridge and a PDF version of the manual, for which Bob offered a thanks to Mark Oberheuser. January 17th. Bob had fixed a bug found by Atari Age user Zylon Bane in which your ship can still fire after being destroyed. A new ROM was posted, but Bob didn't consider it a release candidate because he still had further work to do. Specifically at Zylon Bane's suggestion, he wanted to see if he could get kind of a rumbly sound going during the asteroid phases to reflect the arcade version. The next day, January 18th, Bob posted Release Candidate 5, which fixed some sound issues and added the asteroid rumble. Atari Age user Gabriel noticed that the sound made when the fuel counts down for the bonus uh, doesn't actually exist, which Bob acknowledged. He said, yeah, my mistake. And Gabriel also noticed that the asteroid rumble didn't stop during the docking scene. So Release Candidate 6, with the fuel countdown sound added, was posted. January 19th, Bob had added the squadron complete sound. He fixed the player's shot sound and fixed a bug found by Trevor. Um, I like this bug. I kind of wish he didn't fix it. But what was the bug that Trevor found? Well, it didn't properly clear the laser temp critical message on the screen before the prepare to dock message appeared. And as a result, the message appeared to say, la prepare to dockle. So Bob was like, him, hey, that kind of gives the game a French vibe. Oh man. I wonder if that's an Easter egg, a uh, spoiler alert. There are no Easter egg spoilers in this episode, by the way, I wasn't able to find them and I didn't ask. So anyway, January 22nd, Atari age user, Atari, Brian found that in sector three warp one, he missed a shot and didn't shoot the enemies in the proper order, but still got secret bonus. Number 12 secret bonus. Number 12 is you kill all the enemies before they reach the bottom. So Bob fixed that bug and posted Release Candidate 8, which makes me wonder, um, didn't say anything about Release Candidate 7. Where was that? (laughs) Anyway, January 23rd, the next day, Bob fixed an issue that would cause Secret Bonus 3 to be awarded when it shouldn't. He also fixed an issue in which Player 2 could start the game, which actually was a problem because under certain circumstances, an automatic start could be triggered. So Bob posted a new ROM that fixed that issue. Over the next several days, doing further debugging was a bit difficult because Bob was packing for his move from New York to Florida. But because his laptop was the last thing to get packed, he was able to fix a bug that Lid Likes Television, another Atari Age user, found while playing a two-player game with his brother. His brother was player two, and his brother activated the warp but lost his life and his game ended. And after that, uh, Lid Wario, that's uh, Lid Likes Television's real name, When he was playing Player One, he could move and fire, but there were no enemies. So Bob fixed that bug and posted Release Candidate 9 on February 1st. In mid-March, Bob moved into his new place in Florida, and he started setting up his workbench. But due to a shortage of the proper supplies to build the cartridges, not much happened until December 14th, when Albert announced that he made 50 copies of Astro Blaster available via the Atari Age store. On January 2nd, 2015, another set of not only Astro Blaster but also Casey Munchkin were added to the store. March 10, 2015, Albert posted pictures of Astro Blaster boxes he had just received and said that he would soon make them available. As of this recording, Astro Blaster is available in the Atari Age store with an option to include the box for an additional cost. And it is listed among the Atari 7800 best-selling games in the store. Now, throughout this development history, I mentioned specific features of the game. And if you're not familiar with Astro Blaster, you're probably thinking, huh? Well, you know what? Let me talk about the actual Astro Blaster game. That will probably explain all of that for you. I do believe I said this a few minutes ago, but hey, it's worth repeating again. Astro Blaster was released by Sega Gremlin. Well, actually, it says Gremlin slash Sega on the title screen in the marquee, but uh, whoever it was released Astro Blaster in March of 1981. The game was designed by Gary Shannon and Barbara, I'm gonna guess her name is pronounced Mihalik or Maholic. It's spelled M-I-C-H-A-L-E-C. Um, I'm kind of guessing because I knew a couple of people with names with similar spellings and the C was silent, but I don't know. If if anybody knows for sure, please let me know. Astro Blaster is a space shooter, and um, since this is an Atari podcast, I'm kind of going to guess that many of you listening have played some Atari 2600 games, and that many of you who have played Atari 2600 games have also played the Activision Mega Mania game. Well, if you've never seen Astro Blaster, picture Mega Mania and you have kind of the gist of the game. There's more in Astro Blaster, though. You control a ship whose goal is to dock with a mothership. On the way to the mothership, you have to destroy squadrons of alien ships that are going to attack you in various formations and patterns. Throughout the game, you're going to hear the voice of Mission Control, giving you some pretty valuable information and warnings. And there's a lot of voice in this game. It'll tell you how many ships you have left. One ship remaining. Exercise extreme caution. It'll tell you some other information, such as how your fuel is. Fuel status marginal. Because, yeah, you actually have depleting fuel in Astro Blaster, that you have to keep a close eye on, and um, you'll also be warned if your laser cannon gets too hot. Laser because hey, one great challenge in this game is that you have to keep a close eye on your laser cannon. You just can't keep non-stop firing. If the laser cannon temperature gets too high, you won't be able to shoot until the cannon cools down, which will take several seconds. And if you run out of fuel, the game is over, regardless of how many ships you have left. By default, you get three ships, but at least the arcade ROM that I played, uh, the dip switch could be set to two or three ships. But I do believe some different ROMs will offer you up to five if you choose. But uh, getting a little bit more detailed than what I just said, just like with many games, there are different levels. They call them sectors in Astro Blaster. Once you destroy all the squadrons in any particular sector, you enter an asteroid belt which you can maneuver around, you can shoot through. And what's really cool is if your fuel is low at this point, shooting red fireballs that you'll find kind of spread around the asteroids that will give you more fuel. After the asteroid belt, that's when you have to dock with the mothership. If you fail to dock with the mothership, you lose your ship. Once you do dock with the ship though, You refuel and you get a bonus based on how much fuel you have left. There's kind of a fuel countdown that calculates your bonus. And then your fuel gets replenished. And then you start the next sector. And that's pretty much how the game goes. On the arcade cabinet, the control panel has two buttons for left and right. You can move your ship to the left and to the right. Kind of like Space Invaders. And there are two additional buttons on top of the control panel. There's the fire button, and there's a warp button. Wait a minute, Sean, you didn't say anything about a warp. Well, let me correct that grievous offense right now. In Astro Blaster, you are allowed one warp per ship. And what does the warp do? Well, it was weird seeing it described as a warp, because in my mind, a warp means you skip ahead to something, or you have a vinyl record that's bent out of shape or something. But in Astro Blaster, what a warp does is, is it slows down your enemies pretty significantly, I might add, and it also slows down the enemy fire. And once you use your warp, that's it. It's over until your next ship or until you dock with the mothership. You can replenish your one warp by docking with the mothership. Your fuel gauge is green, and so is your temperature gauge, but but if either gauge is at a dangerous level, it's going to turn red. And what's really cool is if uh, your fuel gauge is in the red, the points that you would normally score actually double. Each different enemy is worth different points, but hey, during a critical fuel situation, you get double the points. So that's actually pretty cool. And speaking of points, there are also special bonuses, secret bonuses, if you will. How do you get those secret bonuses? You have to perform certain tasks. You probably heard me mention before, one possible secret bonus is if you shoot all the enemies before they reach the bottom of the screen. Basically, it has to do with the certain pattern of which order you shoot certain alien enemy ships. So uh, there are lots of those. There are a lot of secret bonuses, and uh, you might accidentally uncover a couple that you don't know about. So uh, that's actually pretty cool. And those secret bonuses, by the way, those were actually bugs in the game. Those were not intentional. It turns out that Gary Shannon, who was one of the designers, he decided, you know what? Forget it. I'm not going to bother fixing those. Those are going to be features. You might remember in a prior episode that I talked about the Blue Sky Rangers over at Mattel and Television who would do similar things, that they found something bizarre happening and they didn't feel like fixing it. They just throw it in as a feature and actually document it in the manual. Now, I usually like to discuss the point values for different things, but there are so many different enemies worth so many different point values. And of course, if your fuel is low, you get double the point value. Man, I'd need an entire episode just to run down the different possible points you can get from shooting the different enemies, from shooting the asteroids in the asteroid belt, the fireballs, and of course, the secret bonuses. And speaking of secrets, as you heard me talk about before, there was a secret Sector 8. And of course, there's a link in the show notes all about the eighth sector. I'm not going to get into that because that's its own complication. And some interesting trivia about Astroblast. There were three different versions of Astroblast. I just realized, I think I accidentally called the game Astroblast. It's actually Astroblaster, as we all know. So, hey, we all have a slip of the tongue. And of course, I have notes in front of me that specifically say Astroblaster. So, oh, well, my podcast, my mistake, don't care. Don't care. Well, I do, actually. But anyway, an interesting bit of trivia about Astro Blaster, there were actually three different versions in the arcade. The first version that came out, people found that it was too hard to play. So there was a second version that made it a little bit easier, and also the instructions that came with the game were a little bit more descriptive, so you could kind of have a better idea of what's going on. And then there was yet a third version that came out, and that one was commonly known as the easy version. So how do you know which version is at an arcade if you happen to see Astro Blaster at an arcade? Well, if the instructions are on the screen, then that's the first version, the hard one. On the 2nd and 3rd versions, after you put your coin in, after you put your credit in, there'd be a blue screen that told you to press Player 1 or Player 2. So if that happens, then you know you have either a medium difficulty version or an easy difficulty version. Also, the 2nd and 3rd versions actually explain some of the rules in the Attract mode. Another unique feature of Astro Blaster is that if you played a 2-player game, The players would alternate between sectors, meaning that once your sector is over, the other player would take over and play that sector as well. That's a little bit different from normal because usually in a two-player alternating game, the players change when you lose a life, but that's not the case here. If you lose a ship in a two-player game in Astro Blaster, the same player keeps going until the end of the sector. So that is... Kind of the gist of Astro Blaster. Now, let's talk about the Atari 7800 version specifically. As for the Atari 7800 version, well, it's pretty much the same as the arcade version in terms of gameplay, in terms of your goals. There are a few features that uh, I'd like to point out, though. At the options screen at the beginning of the game, you can choose three lives or five lives. Also, You can choose between straight laser shots and guided. Guided meaning that uh, your laser will basically follow your ship. So if you move your ship to the right, the laser is going to move to the right. And uh, that is not an option in the arcade version. I have a feeling that's kind of uh, put in there for Mega Mania fans. There are three difficulty level settings. There's easy, medium, and hard and it turns out that each of those difficulty settings is based on the three different arcade versions. The easy difficulty setting follows the difficulty and the patterns of version 3 of the arcade game. Medium follows the difficulty and patterns of version 2 of the arcade game. And hard difficulty follows the patterns and difficulty of the original version of the arcade game. I mentioned how the arcade game has voice. It has a lot of voice all over the place in it, and of course, with the limitations of the Tia sound in the 7800, that would mean that any time that the voice happened, all the other gameplay would have to stop. Unfortunately, because of that, Bob really couldn't reliably put the voice in there. The only time you really hear the voice is the startup sound, really. Also, another reason that it didn't have more voice is because Bob simply ran out of room. Astro Blaster is on a 48 kilobyte cartridge. Somebody said, hey, Bob, why don't you just make it a 64k game? And that way you have extra room for more voice synthesis. And Bob said, well, because if you go over 48k, then you have to have bank switching going on. And I really don't want to do bank switching with this game. So he left it at 48k with just a tiny bit of voice. And he credits Schmutzpuppe with helping him get the voice going on that. So Also, Astro Blaster can auto-detect whether you're using a ProLine-compatible joystick or just a single-button joystick such as the Atari CX40. If you're using a ProLine-compatible joystick, then both fire buttons are used in the game, one for fire, one for warp, and of course, the difficulty switches determine the mapping of which one's fire, which one's warp, and each player has her or his own difficulty switch setting. If you're using a single button controller, then to warp, you pull down on the joystick. Now here's the thing. The arcade cabinet isn't the most attractive thing in the world. It's kind of bland. If you're familiar with how the United States version of the Frogger cabinet looks, the Astro Blaster cabinet's not much different. It's kind of just bare wood on the sides and a marquee and some graphics on the control panel. And the marquee for Astro Blaster is not really the most exciting looking thing in the world. So for the artwork on the box, the manual, and the cartridge itself, Mark Oberhäuser used the artwork from the operations manual for the arcade Astro Blaster, which looks much more exciting than what's actually on the cabinet. So I thought that was a pretty cool little touch there. The manual, as with most Atari 7800 manuals, is just a simple one-piece glossy folded Manual, I guess that's the best way to say it. And the box is pretty typical of Atari 7800 boxes. This one is very customized. It doesn't look like the the silver-red design of Atari 7800 games. But on the back, it has a description of the game, making it sound all exciting. Well, it is exciting. And it has a few screenshots as well, as well as proper credits and everything. And I should opine about Astro Blaster. I'm not terribly familiar with Astro Blaster in the arcade. I've never seen it in an arcade. I played a couple of versions of the rom, and uh, what I noticed is that the graphics are very, very intricate. Like, they're very small sprites, yet they're extremely detailed and they all move individually. On the 7800, Bob DiCrescenzo did a wonderful job of converting that. Same thing. Very intricate graphics and They're so detailed. Like I love how uh, some of the alien ships actually spin while they move. He nailed it. The animation is so smooth and the game itself. I'm not a big fan of space shooters, like say Galaxian and Galaga, because to me, all you're doing is just shooting things with no real purpose, but Astro Blaster gives it an extra level. Like you have to dock with the mothership. The different aliens have different patterns. And uh, it's really a lot of fun, and especially since you got to watch out your, for your fuel, you got to watch out for your laser temperature. It's so much fun. I love playing this game. My friend Keith Sheehan, who's uh, who's a longtime listener of this podcast, uh, given this podcast relatively short history, <laughs> had actually said on Atari Age that uh, he. Didn't know Astro Blaster at all, but man, he's like, this is a must have. And I totally agree with him. Totally. I will put a link in the show notes to where you can purchase it. So really that is um, Astro Blaster. (laughs) And the perhaps least surprising news in the world. I got feedback from Eugenio, MD. Thank you so much for taking the time to do that. I'm always glad to see your feedback here. And he says, Greetings, Sean. Well, greetings to you, Eugenio. Uh, Freeplay Florida has come and gone, and it was yet another totally fun retro gaming event. Oh, man, that's probably one uh, thing I should go to, I guess. I had the chance to meet Brian Colin, who is currently the CEO of Game Refuge, Inc., an independent video game designer and development studio, but who is also known for his work on the game Rampage. There were two machines right next to him, Original Rampage and Rampage World Tour, to enjoy Got to say hi again to some of the guys who have video game score records like Billy Mitchell, Todd Rogers, and David Cruz. Meet Gary Stern and even hang out with Al from Atariage and Tim Lappatino, Art of Atari. That's awesome. I did get the exclusive 2600 game as well. There were no new 7800 games though, but the Atariage booth had a ton of games on sale. I'll include a link to my picture album at the end of this email. And by the way, I will put that link in the show notes as well. Um I'm going to interrupt myself here just to address this that first uh, little paragraph. Um yeah, I didn't think there would be any new 7800 games at least not from Atari age. So that's uh to be expected. Uh, exclusive 2600 game. Yeah, the uh the reworked Midnight Magic that sounds fascinating. Uh, man, Tim Lappatino, I had my copy of Art of Atari with me at Midwest Gaming Classic and I never did track the guy down thing is Tim lives in Chicago and I believe he's I believe like me he's a North sider so I'm always kind of keeping an eye out for him see if I bump into him anywhere but I never do he's uh, <laughs> so I, I haven't had a chance to meet him I got to hang out with Al myself probably about 10 years ago when uh uh my pie factory podcast co-host uh Jimmy G and I and and uh Jim's wife we went to uh, Midwest Gaming Classic and uh he had a little gathering in the suite that he and Tempest were sharing for the show. So uh, we got to hang out with him there. But man, that's so awesome You got to meet all these people. And uh, I don't know about you, um, Eugenio, but when I met Billy Mitchell last August when he was at uh, Underground Retrocade, what I saw of Billy Mitchell was pretty much the same thing that everybody told me to expect, basically the complete opposite of how he was portrayed in... Uh, king of kong the guy was very upbeat billy had everybody just laughing hysterically I mean, he's a funny guy fun guy and uh seemed at least from my impression of him also very respectful as well so uh that was that was quite an experience and i'm glad you got to meet brian colin that that guy is such a scream he really is he's a friend of pie factory podcast actually it's so great living in the the greater metro Chicago area, because there's are so many video game people out here. As you've heard from past episodes of this podcast, so much of video game history comes from the Chicago area. It seems that it's either from Chicago, Silicon Valley, Southern California, or Japan. <laughs> That's where most video game history comes from. Yeah, and uh, speaking of Rampage, I should mention this. There is a Rampage movie coming out, and I'm sure that Brian talked about it when you saw him. He seriously is so freaking ecstatic about that movie. I mean, I don't think the movie's going to be a mammoth blockbuster by any means. It might be a little bit cheesy, in fact, but the thing is, like, I have never seen anybody just so giddy about an upcoming project. I and mean, I'm sure it's one thing to have your video game designs come out because, Hey, that's your job. But watching your creation turn into a major motion picture, that's gotta be quite something. And, uh, as usual, Brian was also at Midwest gaming classic, uh, earlier this year. And, uh, He was selling Rampage the Motion Picture film crew T-shirts, and uh, I typically wear double XL, but sometimes um, I will get myself a triple X just to give myself a little extra breathing room. So I asked for a triple X. I had to leave the uh, Pie Factory podcast table for a while for whatever reason. And when I came back, Jim said to me, he said, hey, I just talked to Brian. He only has one triple X shirt left. So if you want it, go get it. So I went over to him and I said, hey, Brian, I heard that you have a fat guy size ready for me. And he said, no, Sean, I'm sorry. I did not have a fat guy size, but I do have a size for you though. I was like, oh, come on, man. (laughs) Oh, man. That's anyway, resuming your feedback, Eugenio. Thanksgiving has also come and gone now, so I hope you had a nice one with your family. I had a good one and was as stuffed as a turkey by the end of the day. I did my traditional Christmas decorating of my house over the weekend as well, so I'm ready for the holidays. Well, Eugenio, anyway, yeah, I um, what I usually do, my wife and I usually go out to New Jersey for Thanksgiving, and because uh, my wife is from New Jersey and that's where her mother lives, so we usually spend Thanksgiving with her. We spend a few days in New Jersey, and then she comes out here to Chicago for Christmas. So that's kind of the trade-off. We used to go out there for Christmas, and then. We'd spend Christmas Eve there, we'd have uh, spend a little bit of Christmas there, and then we'd fly back home, and then we'd pick up the car from the parking lot and then speed down Interstate 55 and, and uh, go to my parents' house, and that turned out to be just always a big hassle, so now my mother-in-law just comes out here, and that makes things a lot easier. <laughs> Yeah, I'm pretty sure I ate my share of turkey as well. And in the last couple of years, I'm thinking, oh, man, is there any way that maybe I can see, uh, maybe I can hang out with Ferg? Because that's Delaware. It's easy to get to, just a quick drive down the turnpike, you know. And in fact, he even messaged me while I was in Jersey. He's like, hey, how long are you going to be here? And we just didn't have enough time. Uh, Ferg, if you're listening, believe me, I do want to uh, uh, get together sometime when uh, we're in the same location or can easily get to the same location. (laughs) yeah and then uh, we got home the evening of black friday and then the next day we started decorating i put up our artificial tree and everything and uh you see this is why my wife and i are soulmates this is her decree before we start decorating for christmas She has to play the song Christmas time is here again by the Beatles. She has to play it. She's like, okay, Christmas cannot happen until we play this song. So anyway, sorry, you Let me get back to you. Uh, But enough of that. Yeah, me too. (laughs) How about I give you some feedback about the game for this episode? That's a great idea. That would be Astro Blaster. This game was released in the arcades in 1981 by Sega Gremlin. I don't remember ever seeing this arcade game in those days when I was younger In the game, the player controls a ship to destroy waves of aliens, followed by avoiding asteroids, and then followed by a docking scene with a mothership in order to refuel. It is during this docking that the patient's score is calculated for that wave, I think he means player's score, with bonus points added for remaining fuel. Though the game may sound like one of many space shooters of its time, it does add some unique elements to its gameplay. One of these elements is the fuel gauge, which does not. Did my voice just crack the fuel gauge? (laughs) Which does constantly move down as you attack the aliens. If you run out of fuel, you are one dead ship pilot. Another is the fact that your laser does heat up if you fire too fast, so you can't just fire away as you may do in other space shooters. You do get a warning that the laser is heating up, but if you ignore the warning, the gun becomes non-functional until it cools down. The third element is the addition of a warp that lets you slow down all the enemies and their shots for several seconds. In adapting Astro Blaster to the 7800, Bob has done yet another excellent job, bringing that arcade experience home. Visually, everything looks quite close to the arcade. The alien ship designs are a little simplified and only use one color, but they are quite easy to recognize when compared to the arcade originals. Even your own starship looks fantastic. What Bob did have to change was where the score and gauges are on the screen. In the arcade, there's a blue border surrounding the playfield, and the bottom has a thicker bar with the fuel gauge, the temperature of the laser, and the score. Because of the horizontal orientation of the TV screen, Bob kept the exact border, but equal all around. He added the scores at the top of the bar, and the gauges are part of the bottom section of the border. All in all, it looks great and comes quite close to the arcade. Game sounds are also done as well as they can be with Tia, and the gameplay is really well done. There are three skill levels to choose from, and a two-player mode as well. You can use the 2600 or 7800 joysticks. Are those not the pain line controller? (laughs) And the program will detect which ones you're using. Oh, and did I forget to mention that you select from standard shots and guided shots? So, get on your astro ship and blast some aliens. You won't regret it. Until next time, Eugenio. Eugenio, thank you so much. That was really great as usual. I always get great feedback from people, and Eugenio is no exception, so I'm always thrilled to see that. You're talking about we can choose standard shots and guided shots. Gee, I wonder what that could be. <clears throat> Mega Mania. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I do love not just how Bob does this sometimes, but I think on the NES as well. They do some pretty clever refactoring of the screen to fit the horizontal orientation so you still have all the necessary elements without losing anything. And uh, I think it's really well done how uh, Bob implemented that. And yeah, another great arcade conversion. No big surprise. And uh, you don't remember ever seeing this arcade machine back then, Eugenio? Well, neither do I, and I'm sure not a lot of people do. And in fact, I'm looking up Orcade.com right now, A-U-R-C-A-D-E, and it's only listing six. And I just now realize that Galloping Ghost in Rookfield, just south of Chicago, has one. And, oh, and uh, I'm going there the day after this episode is released, so I'm definitely going to check it out. I didn't realize they had it there. Uh, let's see arcadia retrocade in fayetteville arkansas has it fun spot in uh, new hampshire has it grinker's grand palace in eagle idaho hyperspace in lakewood colorado and pinball pa and uh, ala pennsylvania also has it so those are the known places that have the arcade game and uh honestly that was all the feedback i got about astro blaster in time at least for recording this episode if you have any thoughts on it feel free to send in your thoughts no problem um homebrew78 at fab4it.com or you can post on facebook or my twitter handle or whatever but um so i'm not really surprised because astro blaster was not that common a game even though it's one of the top sellers in the atari age store so not many people are familiar with it from the arcades and i'm guessing it's not the most famous thing in the world so i'm not surprised but uh thank you eugenio for sending in your feedback and with that, we have yet another episode of the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast finished. And I thank you all very, very much for listening. I really do appreciate it. Thank you for your time. And those of you who take the time to email me and send feedback and whatever else have you, I really do appreciate it. That's very kind of you to do that. And it's also very kind of the following people who have sponsored this podcast monetarily. Thank you to... Kyle Edder, Ed Ladin Controllers, Gray Defender, Richard Valdez, Jimmy G, and Richard Grounds. And if you'd like to join those folks in supporting me over Patreon for this podcast, the website is patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash homebrew78. And aside from that, you can email me at homebrew78 at fab4it.com, and you can tweet to me at homebrew78. My YouTube channel is homebrew7800. And the show notes are available on the web at homebrew78.fab4it.com. The number four, it.com. So next episode, that's going to be the last episode before Christmas. Of course, hey, we better talk about Christmassy stuff. So that's going to be Santa Simon. Santa Simon. I got a feeling not many of you actually have that. And I'll also be talking about some other 7800 Christmas-related stuff as well. Ooh, is there more? Well, you're going to have to listen to find out. And uh, I'm one of those people who actually likes Christmas, so I'll be happy to share some of my Christmas thoughts and memories with you as well, kind of interspersed throughout the episode. Uh, And of course, I'm absolutely welcome to hearing what you have to say as well. And after that, we will have one more episode, at least I'm planning one more episode before the year ends, which should be out December 30th, and for that one, I'm going to talk about the homebrew called Worm! I realized I was supposed to cover that earlier, but I didn't. I apologize about that. I figured, you know what, I said I was going to do it, I'd better do that one ASAP, and um, I think what I'll do, I think I'll open up 2018. After Worm, the next episode I'll do is since Astro Blaster was kind of talked about as an improvement upon Astro Fighter, well, guess what? There's an Astro Fighter homebrew for the 7800. So that's how it's going to look the next three episodes Santa Simon, Worm, and Astro Fighter. If you're not familiar with those titles, now would be a good time to get them, although lots of luck getting Santa Simon. That was a limited edition cartridge. But uh, the rest you can get on the Atari Age store, and I encourage you to do that. Please give these hardworking homebrew developers the support they deserve, and thank you for giving me the support that I either do or don't deserve. I truly appreciate it, and uh, I'm really excited about talking to you again in a couple of weeks. So, uh... Got our head in the sand So blow the horns just a little bit higher We'll be glad to take a flyer When we learn to listen to the band Listen to the band